0: Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service were just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in closed quarters. The Garrison Project Podcast tells those stories, your stories, and builds connections across generations of veterans. The Garrison Project, veterans connecting with veterans through the power of storytelling. And now your host, Dan Eddinger co-founder of the Garrison Project.
1: Hey everybody, this is Dan Edinger from the Garrison Project podcast, about to kick off episode 12, the big one two. Pretty excited with the momentum we have because I've just scheduled two more recordings for this week and have two uh, additional individuals who are looking to get, get on the show. Get those scheduled maybe towards the end of the week. I don't want to overload myself with with these so I can work on the rest of what we have going with the Garrison project. So anyway, have a couple of shows already scheduled for this week. We'll see where that ends up. Pretty excited. Maybe we'll get to 20 sometime fairly soon here with the amount of response that we got. Good stuff all around here and uh, here at the corporate headquarters, worldwide corporate headquarters. Of the garrison project we're getting battened down for a big storm it is september 10th day before the anniversary of 9-11 which is kind of a bummer but also kind of a bummer as we're getting ready for a hurricane that's supposed to come through we'll see where that lands and off we go from there not too much to reinforce because i haven't had too much time to work on the couple of big initiatives we have going with the garrison project one of them being the Rucksack, although we do have a couple of new resources that are posted there. I just did those this weekend. have a, another one that I'll do maybe tomorrow, another cool resource that I just uh, was talking with somebody about, and that person is going to be on the show sometime soon. We'll get that posted, but also the Veterans Community Center. Haven't had anybody sign up yet, but we'll get there. Again, it's a uh, it's a beta version of a social network. That is the Veterans Community Center. Sometime here in the near future, we'll have our resource sharing application rolled out and we need to be connected somehow, which is the reason why that we have this first beta version of the Veterans Community Center. We'll have something whiz-bang, super wham coming up t- sometime soon. For now, though, sign up to the Veterans Community Center, build yourself a profile and get ready to receive resources as you ask for them. And have the community respond and us share the, the, the success stories and the useful stuff that we find from day to day. Enough of that gobbledygook. Let's get ready for episode 12. Another great interview. This one a little bit different. This will be our first Coast Guard interview that we've had. Travis Collier coming to you live from New Orleans, Louisiana. One of my favorite places in the country to be wish we were there now so here we go everybody put your seatbelts on strap in get ready to listen to an awesome episode of the garrison project podcast with travis collier here we go hey everybody this is dan Edinger. With the Garrison Project coming to you live and in person from Cary, North Carolina, worldwide headquarters of the Garrison Project, this is the Garrison Project podcast with yet another fantastic interview. It is the evening of seven September, uh, and we're joined here by uh, Travis Collier, uh, U.S. Coast Guard, still active duty, but uh, we connected a couple of years ago. Uh, Travis has done some stuff in the in the transition veterans transition space. It was really interesting. And, and he and I talked and I was bouncing back and forth to New Orleans, which is where Travis is at. Really pleased to have him on the show. Travis, welcome to the show. Great to have you here.
2: Dan, again, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate the chance to talk.
1: Yep, absolutely. And it's funny, uh, for the audience's context, Travis and I have been battling signal issues for the last two days trying to make this thing (laughs) happen. So so this Uh... time we're serious. It's gonna happen.
2: Yeah,
1: I'm definitely not C for IT. So, Travis, we what we've been doing here is starting out the uh, the show with hearing a little bit a little bit about what's keeping you busy right now, and with you because you've already put a lot of time and thought and effort into what your transition is going to become when you do get out. This is going to be interesting. It'll blur all the lines of where our questions are. But tell us a little bit now about what keeps you busy, your hobbies. We already said that you're in New Orleans, so tell us what keeps mm-hmm. you busy now.
2: Sure, Dan. So I'm currently stationed in the port of New Orleans. I'm a uh, maritime casualty investigator. I'm actually the senior casualty investigator for the port of New Orleans for the Coast Guard. So if you imagine, NTSB has lead on almost every mode of transportation in the United States, but some of their some of those authorities split out of the NTSB, and uh For me, I manage marine or maritime accidents from 180, 168 miles up the Mississippi River to 12 miles offshore, and then in some limited cases, I I manage accidents as far as South America. So it's a challenging job. It's an incredibly rewarding job. I I didn't realize I was getting myself into when I took on this role. Um, I'm learning as I go along. I lead a team of 10 other investigators. In doing that workload and it's it's fun uh we handle about five to seven percent of the entire coast guard's investigative caseload so there's never a dull moment um last night i had a deep draft vessel a 45 foot draft 700 foot bulker ground in the mississippi river i had a couple of barges loose propulsion um and a passenger injury on a on a ship coming back in from Doing their cruise in the Gulf of Mexico, and that's just one other, day.
1: Other than that, though, nothing really was going on.
0: <laughs> it's actually quiet
2: season. So for us, the Mississippi River floods in the spring due to mm-hmm. snow thaw, as well as traffic increases because of grain season. And yep. the Mississippi, New Orleans ships sixty percent of America's grain overseas. Yeah. Or sixty percent? I'm wrong. Sixty percent. Sixty percent of the grain that goes overseas departs from New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So. That time of year, the the river can run at a current of about four to five knots easily. And things play pinball, unfortunately.
3: Um, yeah.
2: It's nature of the business. We're, we're lucky and extremely fortunate that the lo- there is no loss of life or very minimal loss of life. There's really a lot of property damage that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'll take three calls in a, in a night of small-scale stuff versus February 12th where it's, four to five groundings in the night, which is pretty easily possible.
1: So I, I come from the submarine force, and if there's one thing that a submarine is not, it's maneuverable. And <laughs>
3: see,
1: seeing seeing those, uh, the bends right there as you get down towards the end of the Mississippi, and Lord knows it's got to be that way all the way through it, but trying yeah. to make barges get around those bends, I can't even imagine. It was, it, I, I white knuckled it all the time trying to, in maneuvering the ship, so I can only imagine what a barge is like.
2: Well, I mean, especially right now, there are barge restrictions. So we do put barge restrictions in place for high water, what we call high water, and when the current's really bad. Um, and there culturally have been horsepower requirements to maneuver in the Mississippi, somewhere <laughs> between 230 horses to 250 horses, either per tow or per barge and tow or per length of barge and tow. So the rules are, are there to make it manageable. And the, you know, the, the tugs that are operating today are, are extremely powerful, extremely maneuverable you're seeing z drives on tugs, you're seeing triple engines on tugs, you're seeing a lot you're seeing thrusters. You're yeah. seeing a lot of different stuff to make it happen, to make the river do what the river needs to do. But yeah, it's a it's a whole world. It's a whole operation, whole maritime operation that I think the coastal sailors don't experience or, or understand or mm-hmm. sometimes give the credit to. And it's really interesting to see the mix of that here in New Orleans.
1: If uh, we're going to talk a little bit about where you came from and, and how you got to where you're at now, but wherever that was that we will find out about, is it is it kind of surreal that you're doing the kind of work that you're doing now? Did you ever envision that you would land in the kind of gig that you're working in?
2: Uh, absolutely not. I, uh, I actually got passed over for lieutenant 14 years ago, and uh-huh. I thought I was on my way out. I, I thought I was going to do five and dive, and – When I did make lieutenant the second time around, I was extraordinarily humbled, and I had no idea where I would go in my career. Uh, One leadership principle, I always say, in the uniform. And it kind of works out of the uniform, too. As I say, every five years, the game changes. So when I did make lieutenant (laughs) in 2006, the orientation of the service then was towards port security, uh, the Maritime Transportation Security Act. Was enacted, and ports were actually creating security posture programs and plans to put into place.
3: Um,
2: the Coast Guard reorganized under then-commandant Admiral Allen to unify its operational ashore structure under a pair of O6s versus sometimes three or four O6s in the same geographic region. That was huge. Yeah.
3: Um, mm-hmm.
2: No, I had no idea I would be doing this job. I had no idea I would come to New Orleans when I state When I was when I transferred to Texas in 2006, I, I kind of wanted to avoid New Orleans because there was this mystique that post-Katrina, I didn't want to be here. I didn't think it would be a good place to promote from. I didn't think it was career viable. Um, and I am now on the complete opposite end of that spectrum. I, I wish I'd come to New Orleans 10 years ago. I, I wish I had more of a chance to stay here. I actually extended here for a fourth year into my current position because I didn't want to leave. Yeah. Um, the city grows on you and the coast guard is unique in that we really do take on the color or the flavor of the community with which we are stationed with because we regulate and enforce laws in the same community we live in we don't for us there's no away game there's no deployment everything is at home and Mm The Coast Guard has a float in the Mardi Gras Parade, so I got the ride in that for two years. That's kind of unique. Good Lord. Um, there's a Navy float, too. So the Navy floats like a smaller-scale constitution. Oh, so whatever. A constitution. Oh, yeah, it's hilarious. It's actually a pretty well-done float. Um, the Coast Guard floats a small boat that has a – sometimes it has a helo on it, sometimes it doesn't. depends if the helo stays on or not. But, I mean, <laughs> where else could you go to do that besides New Orleans? Where else could you go and see and experience – the history of how the river both unified and fed America for the last 240 years. I mean, there's no place else like it. So I'm, I'm glad I'm here. Um, I didn't, I never thought I would be here, but I, I'm truly glad and humbled to be here and wish I could stay longer.
1: Yeah. I I got a kick out of, and it was when we first started talking, I was uh, in the, the job I was doing. I was making a bunch of trips back and forth to new Orleans and I'd only been there once before I made that series of trips and, and I love it you know i I'm even still so corny. I don't know if it's a uh, cliche tourist thing, but I love the the beignets deal <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I just can't stop going down there what's what's the name of the uh the cafe or whatever
2: well there's two there's cafe du bon in the French quarter yeah. dumont and then the morning calls out of city park, which is where I go because it's less of a crowd and <laughs> Beignet fest is happening. I think next month
1: there's, there's a beignet fest.
2: <laughs> there's a beignet fest, there's a fried chicken fest, there's a creole tomato fest, there's a crawfish fest, there's an oyster fest, there's a jerk chicken fest. There's, there's a couple of beer fests, There's bourbon, boudin and beer, which I think is in March. There's uh-huh. tales of the cocktail there. I can keep going. I'm telling you. Now,
1: now I'm just angry. And uh, <laughs> I want I want to move uh, worldwide headquarters of the Garrison Project to New Orleans. <laughs> come on down, yeah, come yeah. on down. So yeah, fantastic. I, I've uh, I've really appreciated the 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 phone calls and stuff that we've had, and I appreciate where you're coming from. So get us warmed up for what will be a couple stories about what service is meant to you by tell mm-hmm. by telling us how you uh, landed in the coast guard, where you came from and, uh, how you joined and, and how your career's, uh, been, and, and maybe, maybe a little bit more about specifically like, you know, army guys would say MOS Navy guys would say NECs and, uh, specialties, Mm -hmm. you know, submarine and all that. So specifically what that is that you're doing, but include that in the story of how you joined the military and how you, how you ended up there.
0: Sure.
2: So, my specialties are a little different. So my primary specialty is actually education and training. Um, I've spent two thirds of my career in the Coast Guard's education and training system, which includes a deployment to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for a year.
3: Um, yeah.
2: Um, my secondary specialty, which should be my primary specialty, is com- what we call commercial vessel safety,
3: um,
2: or maritime compliance. And th- the watchword, the watch phrase I always use is that compliance has a scale for a reason. So the Coast Guard inspects all commercial ships operating in the U.S. and overseas. Um, my friends upstairs in my building service uh, the MSC fleet here. They service the MSC icebreakers in South America that service the Antarctic. They service the offshore supply vessel fleet, which manages crew boats and equipment delivered oil rigs anywhere from here to Trinidad to Brazil to elsewhere in this hemisphere. So it's a Oddball of my specialty in that I'm usually assigned to a training center. I've been assigned to two of our three major training centers: our East mm-hmm. Coast training center in Yorktown, our West Coast training center in Petaluma. Uh, my graduate degree is in education and training. It's called instructional and performance technology. So imagine education and organizational performance is one degree, and that's what I can do.
3: Um, mm-hmm.
2: I kind of got it from my dad. So to flip it back to being from home, I'm originally from a small town called Brunswick, Georgia. On the coast, oh, about yeah. like half hour north of Kings Bay. Yeah, um, born and raised. Don't have the accent. Don't ask me when I lost it. I don't remember.
1: Can um, Can you put it on? Can you put the accent on?
2: Uh, <laughs> only on certain occasions.
1: <laughs> Go ahead. Oh wait, a minute. before Before you move beyond that, we had a guy on our boat who was from Brunswick. He was a, a, a junior officer on the Pennsylvania, and they called him oh, the yeah. Brunswick. They called him the Brunswick Blazer. <laughs> It was insane. What's his name? <laughs> you don't mind me asking. Uh, yeah. Adrian Dell.
2: Dell, Del, Dell, 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 yeah, Dell. So yeah. I think he went to Brussac High. Okay.
1: <laughs> do, you, do you think you know him? Because he would have been about your vintage.
2: I think I didn't. I, I may not know him. I think I know him. I think he went to the opposing high school. There's only two high schools in my hometown.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: unfortunately. And, you know, short story, actually, Camden County High got profiled in the Atlantic A few years ago, James Fallows, you know, one of their most legendary writers in the Atlantic, actually profiled Cannon Caddy High School as a template high school. Yeah, as a template high school for a mix of high school, and baccalaureate or, you know, undergrad, associate level education. And Uh that this school does both and gets people a lot of education and a great football team and a great community all wrapped in the one. Yeah, surprisingly.
1: yeah so happy upbringing everything was good and you you joined from there how did uh, how'd you end up in the military
2: so i had an assistant principal his name was les thomas great guy and he had always tried to get minority applicants thinking about the coast guard and i think he was either mm-hmm. an auxiliarist or reservist at some point while he was still in he was also a county sheriff at some point he sat me down back in 96 showed me the video showed me the book Listened to pamphlets i chuckled i laughed it off I never thought I would join the military. It was never my bloodline. My dad, my dad was drafted in 61. He actually marched in Kennedy's assassination, funeral procession in 63, um, got out before the search, got out before Vietnam got big, and returned back to Georgia to, to be a teacher. So I never had really, I had a cousin who was in the Coast Guard who retired. Um, it was There was an old Coast Guard station that, at St. Simon's at the Lighthouse that shut down years back. It just, what had been a had been saying was in my pipeline. I thought, and I was taught, you know, I graduated from high school, I go to Georgia Tech, I become a computer engineer, and that was it, like that was my path. And Mr. Thomas said, no, you know, try. have you thought about a service academy? No, I haven't. Well, look at this video. Look at that video. Um, look at the uniforms. Look at the culture. The Coast Guard is a life-saving service. You don't go into combat.
3: Um,
2: and I was interested, so I threw an application together and sent it in, and the Coast Guard is not, is the only academy, it doesn't require a congressional appointment, so it's all merit-based. And uh, the day I turned 17, my appointment certificate came in the mail. So we sat around the table, my parents and I, with all the acceptance letters and whatnot, and uh we really talked about it. They said, well, you know, you got to think about it. You will be employed for five years guaranteed when you graduate. That's probably your best option. And uh, I think to a certain extent, my parents wanted me to leave the South. I think they wanted me to to get away from not that I had a bad upbringing. Again, I'm a small hometown. My parents are third generation, same hometown. Um, It's great. But for being say 21 to 27, it's there's not, there wasn't a lot of upper, upper mobility. Um, not a really huge middle class, so for them, they thought going to the academy, having a guaranteed employment, and being able to see the world and see America would be the best opportunity I had to broaden myself. So, yeah, being under 18, they signed me over. Um, I still love them for it, and <laughs> they dropped me off swap summer 1997, and that's how it all started.
0: Very
1: cool you certainly heard stories from other academies and all that pretty much the same experience at coast guard Academy.
2: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So I did apply for merchant Marine Academy King's point. I was an alternate. Um, again, I applied for the merchant Marine Academy because the size of the Academy matched what the coast guard Academy was back then we were under a mm-hmm. thousand cadets total. And that's what yeah. I was used to. um, the other four academies seem to, I'm sorry, other three academies seem too big for me. I actually had a classmate from high school get into Air Force Academy, Colorado Springs, graduate the same time I did. Uh, he went to be a lawyer and recently got out. I have a second cousin who is a Annapolis grad, class of 15, football player, and went Marine, and now stationed at Pendleton, who came out to visit me a little while ago. So there's some maybe in the family, don't get me wrong. Um <laughs> but they're pretty similar. I mean, you start off, you do your indoctrination summer That's six weeks for us. We go sail on the Eagle, the tall ship Eagle, which is an experience all into itself. Yep. Um. You start your freshman year, you take your 20 credit hours, you fail out your first semester, you go back home crying and hope you, they'd let you stay out for a second semester and you go from there. Um,
0: <laughs> check.
2: <laughs> check. Check all. I had a one, two, four, my first semester at the Academy.
0: <laughs> Good Lord.
1: <laughs> hey, and,
2: and, and then let me stay, so, which means there are others who were better and worse than me.
1: <laughs> Very nice. Okay. What, uh, what came next? So, uh, so you make it out of the academy and what did the, uh, how'd the career path go?
2: Nine eleven changed everything. So I graduated. I was the last class to graduate before nine eleven. I graduated in 01. I graduated okay. May 23rd of 20, 2001. I, uh, yeah. got stationed on the Cutter Vigorous back then out of KMA, New Jersey. In those times, the Coast Guard had a very difficult time being fully funded, so we would have scheduled patrols that we couldn't make because we didn't have a fuel budget. And uh, yeah. the same thing that happened to me the summer before, or well, it happened to me, I was a cadet the summer before, it didn't really happen to me, but the cutter I was on was supposed to do uh, two, two and a half months, uh, Alaska, Bering Sea Patrol, they got cut in half because of fuel funds. So I remember changing command on my boat where the the chief of staff the three-star came down and said hey we found you money you're getting underway and we we're all excited because we were getting getting underway a week later and there was no money for it um did my first patrol after 9 11 pulled back in i was at i was actually at sub-base groton at uh ekms school and 9 yeah. 11 happened that morning and that changed everything um we didn't we were we did Majority of our patrols in the North Atlantic, so Georgia's Bank fisheries, and then we did a lot of Homeland Security patrols off of Norfolk, Virginia, um, doing sub escorts, which was crazy because the subs were driving faster than our boat, which is pretty interesting.
3: Um,
2: <laughs> not saying so the surface, you know, y'all do 18 not surface, and we can't keep up with that as some of our platforms. So <laughs> That's
1: that's bizarre, true. but go ahead. <laughs>
2: it's, it's, it's true. Um, but yeah, doing sub escorts in Norfolk in the fog at 16, 18 knots was pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah, oh, Crazy madness. And, uh, so we did Homeland Security, Norfolk, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, as far north as Portland, Maine. So we did some sub stuff in Maine too, but it wasn't as needed as it was in Norfolk. And, uh, that was two years and I got off the boat. Um, the boat was probably my, my most difficult tour in the Coast Guard, uh, we have this. We have a couple of sayings about the float community. One of those sayings that the afloat community eats its young. Um, I got eaten, honestly. I came off that, that 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 tour not expecting anything else except getting out. And uh, yeah, I got stationed in Yorktown, Virginia, at the Coast Guard the East Coast Training Center in, in uh, Yorktown. And I was stationed at a unit that's pretty legendary that a lot of people don't know about, the International Training Division, which kind of morphed over the years. So there's a book you've got to read that I always plug, called "Not Your Father's Coast Guard" by a friend of mine okay. named Matt Mitchell. And Matt profiled our source country interdiction mission for about 20 years. So we would send coasties in green camis to South America to blow up drug labs. That was that was their sole mission. They would go to. Four or five countries in central and south america they would liaise the locals and they would go out to the jungle to blow up drug labs because the theory at the time was if you could stop the production before it got to the interdiction zone you would be more effective and successful so i didn't do that um i went to that unit and that was the year it all spun down and closed up i did more of the short-term mobile training stuff so i would go do country X and train them on Coast Guard leadership principles. I go to country Y question crisis management. Go
1: ahead. Question to your knowledge. Why did the mission do you're saying that these coasties would pull in somewhere and go in country and blow yep. up labs? Yep. Is there, is there more to the story as to why they thought that'd be a good idea? Um, why the um, mission turned into that instead of just staying out uh, off the coast interdicting?
2: Well, there, so I mean, the, the coast, so the coastal defense mission, the interdiction zone mission has always been there. I, I think it started. I, Matt's books tell us the whole history, but mostly when everyone knows Paradise Lost, Time Magazine, Cocaine Cowboys era. I uh-huh. think the Coast Guard was able to latch on to a lot of that and join in to being able to go in country and do work in country. Um, yeah. It wasn't our authorities don't necessarily governing that. So a little left field, but the idea was that if we can protect our platforms from the threat of narco traffickers, then we're doing better in our own business by doing that. And more importantly, if we can train host nation forces to do it themselves, then we get a bigger bang for our buck. So kind of the same thing that we see in every major conflict where we try to train host nations to support themselves.
3: Um Yeah.
2: I don't. I, I really couldn't give you a reason of how it started. I mean, Matt's book will tell you the best story. I was there when it shut down. I think the big reason it shut down is because 9/11 changed everything. Yeah, um,
0: yeah.
2: Narcotrafficking was still an issue. I, mean, I had a drug bust on my my boat, um, but really we were hunkered in for security. We were hunkering in a port security, waterway security, um, homeland defense, and we needed every resource we had, every body we had, every person we had to focus on that. So. I think that's why I kind of strayed away. Also, our armed airborne use of force policy had been finally finalized and sent into the field. So a lot of the interdictions we were doing offshore in the interdiction zone were a mix of boat-on-boat interdictions as well as airborne interdictions. So we felt more comfortable and confident as a service, my personal opinion, that we could interdict in the interdiction zone because of more resources that were capable of doing so. Uh, before 2000, 2001 we didn't have airborne use of force. I mean, it was for us a very difficult concept to get congressionally approved or blessed. Um, we've, we've, it, I was going to ask very... about
1: that. Your, your guys air assets that deploy with you, mm-hmm. whatever size of ship can take a helicopter, are those helicopters tactical? You know, are they, are they armed and all that stuff or what, uh, what sort uh, of some of them armed
2: and some of them are not the majority are not armed.
1: Yeah. That's, but... what, that's what I guess.
2: Yeah, the majority aren't armed. Um, the majority have become – we have one specific unit that focuses on armed or airborne use of force that primarily deploys afloat. Um, we try to – I'm sure we try to match the patrol to match their availability to go do that mission. Yeah.
3: yeah. Um,
2: but they can't match every mission. So it's a mix. Again, majority of our, our, majority of our aviation assets are meant for search and rescue. Majority yep. of our aviation – force laydown. down. It's based on search and rescue. Um, Majority of our duty stations are based on either the dynamic operations at the port or the needs of the, of the public. Um,
1: It's funny. And I guess, reflective of what I've seen other places and I I don't, I just haven't had that much uh, experience operating operating with Coast Guard, except in a force protection posture for the submarine force is that the culture grows up around missions and your guys missions uh, are very uh, are, are very kinetic and changing so maybe that builds a culture of exactly that kind of a you know you can do this or you can do that tell me which one I'm doing today sort of a feel even historically right that you all have pivoted <laughs> you know the force has pivoted a number of times in a pretty uh, pretty short period of time right well,
2: in 50 years, between 1967 and now, we've crossed three agencies from Treasury yep. to Transportation to Homeland. And even being in the Department of Homeland Security, you've got the Customs, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, which the, the ICE mission has always been around. It was the INS mission before it was ICE. That's a different story. FEMA. So FEMA is a, is a sister agency to us. And Homeland strategic priority is border security, so it's, and even that's been different. 2003 to 2006, it was about port security, border security, and now we've expanded that a little further south. So, yeah, we've been, we've had to be extremely flexible with both who we are as a service and what services we provide to the public, and it goes back to Alexander Hamilton's letters to the Commanding Office of Revenue Cutters in 1790-91, where he said, bear in mind your country made a free men, and are the least bit hesitant or resistant of a domineering spirit. So even, and I joked about this online recently, even our ship drivers are in the compliance and prevention business, even though they don't want to say so. But that was Hamilton's intent, my belief, back then.
3: Um, mm-hmm.
2: It's just interesting. And even then, like you said, a majority of our skill set you know a lot of dod people don't see it or experience it like the prevention mission that yeah. i do in commercial vessel safety you see it in tista or RefTray, or, or or however whatever phrase we use now and we do that for industry but you don't engage in that um logistics or logistics no matter what they are and in the response mission the law enforcement mission posse comitatus makes sure that our guns stay separate from your guns
1: yep yeah it's uh- go, going back to the idea about the personalities there are as stark as stark could be differences in the culture of the army officer community to the Marine Corps officer community you know to the Air Force and the navy and I guess yep. that it's just the same with you guys. It's just a different a different culture based on the mission that you have right
2: oh absolutely, and we're a small i mean again the size of our service there's only forty three flag officers we are not yeah. a big service at all Um, i think there's more army officers and entire active duty coasties floating around ever anywhere um we always joke that the the new york police department and us share about the same size so (laughs) always been a joke so the idea that you see 200 coasties in one in one space is is rare outside of certain (laughs) duty station seriously it is um the idea you see more than two captains, two O sixes floating around in any place besides headquarters, or something's a, wrong. Uh, something's wrong. <laughs> I mean, honestly, something's <laughs> wrong. Um, it's just a different, it's a different layout. But then again, our E fours can do armed law enforcement boarding. Our E fours can issue tickets. Our E fours can suspend uh, fishing vessel voyages and make boats return to port. I mean, they can do that. Our O ones, O twos can stop commercial traffic in the river for a verified threat or verified safety risk support. They can do that Um, with backing, of course, but that's the training we start at the most junior levels because we don't have the force posture to manage otherwise.
1: Well, Where it it screamed out at me is, uh, and one last little tidbit here before we jump into a couple of stories about what service has meant to you. But sure. uh, I was I was stationed in Columbus, Ohio, as the head of enlisted recruiting, and a mm-hmm. couple of times uh, there were there were local Sea Scout troops that asked me to help out, and I took them up to the Cleveland Coast Guard Station, and saw that a chief ran the Cleveland Coast Guard Station. I said, "Man, I, I, I seriously looked at uh, at switching over as to what that would look like because <laughs> it looked pretty good to me. The Cleveland Coast Guard Station is nice. It is nice.
2: Yep." Yep, Cleveland's not the only one. I mean, I can. I mean, Station Venice here, I think, is a E eight.
3: Yeah.
2: Ants are aids and navigation teams. So the teams that manage the buoyage system, offshore, inland, in the United States, those are all mostly managed by E seven, E eight,
3: E nine. That's good stuff.
2: It is. I mean, we have sixty-five to eighty-seven footers who are managed by E nine. So. There's not really a. a I'm trying to say there's not really a cutoff. I think 87 footer, 87 foot patrol boat is probably the the biggest platform an enlisted member can command. Mm-hmm. Um, and then warrants have commands as well, ranging yeah. from uh, some not, not one 110s anymore, primarily FRCs and 140 footer black black hull or buoy tending
3: uh, boats. Um, but yeah,
2: for the boats that make community. You know, command ashore and afloat is the highest calling. That starts at E seven.
1: Man, that's good stuff. That is good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. I think we got pretty much most of the uh, the career path mapped out here. And uh, and again, you've landed uh, there in New Orleans with the responsibilities you talked about. And but the core of of this of this podcast is hearing a story or two about what your service has meant to you. Maybe some experiences that you know for sure when you fast forward twenty years into the future after you're long long gone from the coast guard when mm-hmm. your little ones or your you know your family or whatever ask you what what you know what was that whole Coast guard thing about what is the story or two that you think you'll tell them
2: Oh so there's many and there's always many um when I deal with transitioning military members, I say. I recommend a story either per fit rep or evaluation or a story per year of service to help build your resume as you go along. Mm-hmm. So a few of those stories, again, mine are a little different from the standard Coastie. I don't, I don't have the afloat career of a Coastie. I've got a, a training career. So for me, at least right now, if I make a five or not, it's a different story. I, I think I'll find that next week. Um, fingers crossed. But my deployment to Saudi Arabia is probably one of my best stories i it was We had a team of twenty two in country. Our uh-huh. goal was to conduct the Coast Guard's biggest foreign military sale case ever. um a billion dollars of small boats and cutters that the Saudi Ministry of the Interior was leaning towards to create a maritime infrastructure protection force and yeah. uh, we, had t- we had a team we had a team. There's 22 of us. We had the opportunity in my year to train a thousand Saudi border guard officers to convert into the coast guard or their version of the the coast guard to start conducting offshore protection patrols of key infrastructure throughout the kingdom. Like that was an incredible experience.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, Coasties hadn't really been in country since desert storm. So for, for us to be there and set that footprint and also work with the other Homeland Security agencies as well was just phenomenal. Um, the political things happen and the program's kind of dying down, but the chance to see us make a Coast Guard happen in another country and be on the ground floor of doing that, you can't beat that. I can't, there's nothing I can do in compliance, and I love compliance. That'll match what that was. Um, And I tell people that, and they say, well, that's weird. And it's weird because, again, the majority of the Coast Guard never deploys. So I know Saudi, as a deployment, is not as arduous as Iraq or Afghanistan. I get it. I'm with you 100%. But as a Coastie, to wear camis and to be in the desert at all is a chance in a lifetime. And I really am humbled (laughs) by the the opportunity I had to do that to do that.
1: And now how much, uh, was it a bunch of classroom stuff? Was it underway stuff? What What was the breakdown of what you were doing?
2: It was both. So we built a 26-week um, commissioning program to try to get, we had, so again, we had to reverse engineer a solution. So the Saudis were giving us what they were going to give us in terms of people. And we didn't have a chance to do a needs analysis to say the right number of people. We just were, we were going to get 5,000 people in five years. You figure it out. Mm-hmm. So we had to take uh, new um, new privates up to 06-level commanding officers and mold groups together to be units that would operate kind of a mix-up, what we would say, a boat station and a mix of that and a maritime safety security team, so a mix of advanced law enforcement, deployment and have them roll out in time to meet the production schedule for the boats that they were supposed to buy. Yeah. Um, that was the idea. And it was difficult because we had to make that pipeline work. We had to keep people busy. We had to create a qualification program. And we had to map it over to the current Saudi border guard structure. And I think if we signed onto the case, we didn't take into account that mapping over peace. We thought that all we had to do was do commissioning and rollout in a small scale. And no, really the fundamentally changed the perspective of use of force, the perspective of underway engagement, the perspective of management. I'm not saying what the Saudis do is wrong. I'm not saying that at all, but they believe in a order of battle. That's a little different than what we are expecting. The Coast Guard. Um, we don't expect fixed forces. We don't expect symmetric warfare, and having to create essentially an agency oriented towards that it, it was a challenge. Um, yeah, and more yeah. importantly, oh yeah, and then more importantly, imagine trying to take soldiers and make them sailors. That was a cultural challenge as well. because They're used to border security, border defense. Land border security, land border of Thinking the threat's always going to come from land, not from the sea. So that was an adaptation that's still going on.
1: I was going to ask if you had to do uh, boatsmanship training. I don't know if you call it boatsmanship or seamanship, uh, but small boats,
2: uh, small... small boat training, coxswain training, um, tactical coxswain training. I don't think we got as far as pursuit coxswain. So for us, for us in the Coast Guard, coxswain, tack coxswain, and pursuit coxswain are very specific qualifications. To be a pursuit coxman takes about six years of boat driving, small boat driving, and we were trying to make that possible in two. Yeah. Um, but again, the nature of threat, they don't necessarily do a lot of the patrol, a lot of the standard, what we call ports, waterways, coastal security patrols. They don't do it the standard maritime domain awareness patrols. For them, when they go out, they're 80% to go out to respond for a threat. So... Sure there is an opportunity to maybe reduce that qualification timeline because they know when they're moving out, they're moving out, safety's off. Uh, Whereas for us, the 80% of what we do is the low level, you know, awareness, engagement work so we can learn the AOR, we live in the AOR, we operate in the AOR. That way that awareness then becomes our I won't say restraint. It becomes our alert indication. It becomes our, our, our posture to prevent an attack from happening. Like we're more preventive than responsive. And I think when we're building this agency, this force, we're building them to be more responsive than proactive. We're more selective than uh, preventive, if that makes any sense.
1: I hear you. What, and you were there for a year? Is that true? Yes. Yes. So, you were there through the summer. Was it as bizarre as all get out being in the desert in the summer?
2: Uh, no, not in Saudi. I mean Saudi had every brand possible. There was a Krispy Kreme in Saudi, um a couple yeah. of them uh, yeah. uh, we 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 used Ramadan as our way to to do- team change out uh-huh. um, and really after you, after we were there about four to six months, our team we really started receiving the hospitality. Of our Saudi counterparts, that's what really made it hard to leave, was that they would give you the other back if they could. Um, <laughs> and really, we started to see the light bulbs going off with understanding the posture and both both sides. Like we went there, we thought we could make a, an American template and and boilerplate it and stamp it, and it's not an American template; it's really a mix of the American and Saudi template. So once we made the conversion ourselves to, oh no, they're not us; they're going to be the reactive only version of of what we do normally yeah. um that was interesting and also you, you got to remember they're not protecting the entire port they're protecting desalinization plants refineries terminals they're protecting specific pieces of the port and that was that's just something that we as coasties aren't used to we're used to an aor goes from point carabelle to the mississippi border an aor covers 30 to 40 miles of river lane, and AOR covers this broad, sweeping range. Um, and also in Saudi, there wasn't as much civilian interaction with our force. It was because the civilian side is mostly ministry of petroleum. So that crossing that bar was very difficult. Whereas with us, we do at the Coast Guard regulate a lot of the terminal side operations that we would plug into in case of an event. You know, we re- regulate refinery terminals. We regulate liquefied gas terminals, cruise terminals. Uh, We review the security plans for those facilities. Um, We also regulate the waterway. And we also provide the response posture, response forces in case of of a threat or a case of increased risk. So we're kind of more comprehensive where they were going to be more scalpel in their approach, their strategy, and their tactics. So it was different. The desert in the summer, you get used to it um sure you used to yeah. wake it up and walk it outside it's 100 degrees i mean you get used to it it's what, weird what about used to it
1: what about getting underway in the gulf with the the oil drilling rigs and all that kind of stuff at night pretty surreal
2: um we didn't get underway at night so really we we, we didn't um we were scaling our training to keep it daylight only because we didn't uh. want to introduce the risk at night too soon okay so we did cool. do a lot of night. We did a lot of twilight, uh, both a.m. and p.m. Um, and we also had to work around the prayer schedule as well to be respectful yeah. of, the, of, of our counterparts. But there was not a lot of night ops because we really wanted to establish sailor proficiency in daytime and then go towards night. So I think the year after me, when units started rolling out up and down the coast, they went out a lot at night to do uh, what we would call RFO, like what you call TISTA. Like we made it a TISTA requirement. To be be competent and not necessarily commissioning requirements
1: <laughs> excellent stuff and yeah a uh, an experience like that yeah in a, in a career like yours is is obviously got to jump off the page to you what about when you were speaking earlier talking about assigned to a ship that was patrolling up around the was it the george's banks george's where banks, they do yep, <laughs> Were where the the fishing grounds right what's what's the goofy book the uh, uh the ship that went down
2: so it's Sebastian Younger's book. It's yeah. uh, perfect storm. Yeah. Um, Younger actually came. So we were, we actually read perfect storm when it came out and Younger spoke at the Academy when it came out with there you go. back then, some of the air crews, some of the, some of the ships, Yokona, y- y- I think with the cutter. Um, some of those crews are still on active duty back then. And they all came and told their story about the uh, Andrea Gale and the storm and what happened. And it's incredible. Um so yeah, our freshman year, we read The Perfect Storm as as nonfiction for our freshman. Later, they changed <laughs> yeah. the curriculum to make sure we read The Perfect Storm.
1: Things not to do. Uh,
2: not things and... not to do, but <sighs> there used to be a phrase in the Coast Guard about how you didn't, you had to go out, but you didn't have to come back. And it's a throwaway phrase. It's it's a little joke and a jive, but the, the theory was that if you're going out to save a life you risking your life to save that life is more important than you yourself coming back sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's gone away in the last 20 years obviously. Um we talk now about we used to talk about warranted risk and unwarranted risk but that 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 phrase has kind of gone away too. Um we've become more of a posture of really being cleared by risk and not going out if the risk isn't there or not worth it. Yeah. And I, it's, it's a heroic story um but I could see the coast guard of that time. I mean if you look at our surfman mission on the west coast like they routinely go out offshore in a platform that is meant to roll over and right itself to go save lives yeah. um some of that mission is still there if you look at our our alaska mission especially in aviation uh, that mission is still there i mean those the, they're running the alaska crewed fishing vessels are running when the season's open for the two or three months the season's open and they got to make as much as they can while they can we have to be able to support that so it's a lesson learned i think more situational awareness and necessarily what not to do Mm -hmm. um ideally you have the ability now to see predict weather but rogue things happen and you have to trust experience you have to trust people you have to trust that they're prepared for the extreme and can respond to the extreme return home um but yeah georgia's bank it would get dicey i mean eight to ten easily Uh, the winter was really difficult because it would always fall again in the winter so if you're running the canal cnd canal or if you're running boston harbor or boston ship channel going to boston and you've got 100 yards of visibility and a right wheel shows up 200 yards in front of you you got to stop your post you hit the right (laughs) wheel like stuff like that happens um fishing vessels that are they're they're potting are always out there you never know where they are sometimes so you got to make sure you keep aware from them
1: what they're Um, dragging right
2: absolutely where they're dragging what they're picking up what they're putting down that was difficult but and also there was some fun in it too like i spent two thanksgivings in boston i spent a halloween in boston um we did the new york marathon in 2001 and that was pretty cool to see the new york marathon never have seen it before and to be a thousand yards away from the bearers on a bridge watching the runners go across for the very first time. Like that was pretty cool. There's some cool. fun stuff. Yeah. That yeah. was pretty cool.
3: Um
1: well, well tell me this. We're about to shift over into what you are most passionate about now. So just take the the thirty five thousand foot view or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And how how many active or how much were you at years wise in your career? How many more 17. years you're spending in? Seventeen you said? Yeah. Okay. So 17 years in the service, how do you sum it up uh, with respect to the gravity of it in your life or the or, or what you've taken away? How would you sum it up if you're able to? You don't have to be poetic if you don't want to.
2: <laughs> the, the service has been my life. And now I'm trying to figure out what my life is of service.
1: I hear you. And so that's the perfect segue into... Tell us what you're most passionate about now and what parallels you draw. And for you, I think it's going to be pretty, pretty easy and pretty direct. Tell, tell us about the stuff you're passionate about now and draw me some parallels to the the 17 years of service you've put in.
2: I am not I'm passionate about getting out. I'll be honest with you. I know that most of my career is behind me. I know that I have to retool myself for life after the uniform and now really going to Saudi forward I've really been trying to figure out who I am without the uniform to go back to the service component a phrase I often use is services who we are not what we do and I'm trying to figure out now who do I best serve how do I best serve them regardless of the uniform and that's kind of what's come through in my current work um, I wrote my second book Command to Transition. It's been two years, and I wrote it Mm -hmm. as my own tactic, my own playbook for getting out of the military. Um, I'm starting to follow from that playbook now, actually. And it's hard because all of us in uniform are taught, as long as we're on the roster, as long as we're on the PAL, on the York chart, we give everything we got every day we do until we're done. Well, they come to the point where... You do give everything your got but you got to be selfish for yourself. You're not going to be ready to move on from it. And it's becoming hard for me personally in that I still want to be a great leader in uniform. I still want to lead my people. I still want to do my job. I want to do it
3: well. But
2: now some of that clock has to be towards redefining who I am without the uniform, yeah. redefining my skills in a civilian context, choosing Which of the six paths of transition will be the path I take that's going to be most resonant with what I want? Um, Redefining happiness based not on the services metrics, but my own metrics. Um, And honestly, I find myself not as happy now as I was when I was younger. I I really, there's some times where I'm really either angry or upset or pissed off or sad, and I get how... There are the stages of grief, right? There's a the seven stages of grief. There's was it shock and denial, pain and guilt, anger, bargaining, depression, the turn, reconstruction, and hope. I'm trying to go through the seven stages of grief while still being in. I would love the turn to be when I finally make the move to get out, not two years after I get out. Um, I want to move the conversation transition from being the conversation you have at the end of your service commitment to early day one day two your service commitment everyone's got to start thinking about it now um we are the competition like we are the talent and the talent should have the ownership of where we go or don't go and i think the military instilled in itself the same i don't say entitlement society but entitlement structure that the new deal instilled into civilian service especially after world war ii um especially after yeah after war ii and vietnam we, we, we've created the structure where the service takes care of you if you take care of it, it will take care of you afterwards and i think we're starting to pull back the throttle from that as we should i mean the budget's the budget for a reason and the more we pull back from that the more you see a lot of the frustration because people haven't put the work in in the beginning the transition work it doesn't it, it doesn't decrease it doesn't go away I think the transition works constant I think it's always there and you can push it off you can hold it back but the more you hold it back the more it's waiting for you when that time comes so when we talk about the resume story, when we talk about building a network when we talk about what you're doing here building the platform in your story of service you know this is the stuff that now we all have to start doing while we're still in um, one of my high school classmates, great friend of mine, um, we talked about transitioning too. I got to be his presiding official at his retirement last year in Charleston. And, mm-hmm. you know, he gave me a lighthouse as a gift, and I'm still, I mean, it's still, wow, I just, I'm still humbled by it. He's like, you know, the lighthouse shows sight beyond the horizon. You've done that for me to help me find my way out in my family. And I was like, whoa, wow. dude, I, I'm, oh, thank you. i thank you. I I have no response to that. Um, So service for me right now, and it might change in three years when I'm gone, but service for me right now is helping veterans start that conversation for themselves before it's too late for them to start it. And really, every time I coach a veteran, every client I take on helps me figure out my own way. And also, I have to keep in mind, if I make 05, which is a shot, I've got about a 10% chance between now and 2020 to make 05. If I do, will I say no to it and still move on? And I don't know the answer to that question. I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. I, I might, I might not.
1: Well, tell, tell me this. The, uh, you've, you've written two books, you said, correct? Correct. Say again the name of those two books.
2: So the first book was called Scale. I wrote that on deployment. And then the second book called Command You Transition
1: what was the first one about? You and I have talked about it, but I can't remember. It's been a couple of years. What was the first one about?
2: So scale was about, honestly, scale was a book that proved me I could write a book. I had this idea when I went to Saudi, the book I wanted to write. December 1st, 2014, I was in Jeddah, Jeddah in Saudi, listening to the Muza'in and evening prayer, talking to this publisher who had published a book from a friend of mine. And I gave her the idea and what I thought it was going to be about. And it was going to be this whole Seth Godin thing and this, that, and the third. And she goes, you know, no one's going to read that. So I'm like, excuse me? She goes, no one's going to read that. Now, she's more profanity. I'm not going to use her for this podcast. And uh, I was like, what do you mean? She goes, who's that book for? And I'm like, I think it's for. She said, no, if you don't know who's for it, no one's going to read it. And Scale became a leadership book that I wrote about taking personal leadership in your life. And the idea of the scale, scale the model, simplify, consider, activate, leverage, and experience. And I wrote it around a story of a kid who graduates college with a degree in engineering and goes to be a comic and a bartender in Los Angeles. So what's that change model? What's that life model? What's that, le- that personal leadership model that gets you from this world you thought you were going to have to this world that you do now have that you still want to enjoy? Um, I'm kind of on the same journey now. I'm, I'm really trying to simplify peace now, um, simplifying income, simplifying um, expenses, trying not to enjoy the Orleans as much because I know the clock is near, um, considering what life is going to be for me without the uniform. I, I mean, honestly, even the small stuff that we experience in uniform, like a ready-made community that we step into, um, regimented choices about assignments like we know based on specialty the four or five places you're going to go consistently well that goes away um i'm still working on the activate piece the uniform piece i can't wait to grow a beard i wish the military (laughs) bring beards back i really do i think it's time i think the military's afraid but i think it's time um
1: one bit of input is the uh and I think it fits in here where, where you're talking about things that are just actually different in uh it, it occurred to me a couple of years ago is when, when you're in the military, when, when I walked into a room in uniform, everyone there knew everything about me, right? An introduction mm-hmm. actually probably didn't need to get made for 95% of my career and what mm-hmm. I was. And that never ever happens anywhere else. Uh, because you literally wear what you are on you at the time. Right. And, uh, and I think that that is a prime contributor to this feeling of community that so many veterans feel and speak to missing is I don't have to introduce myself to you because you know exactly Mm -hmm. what I am from the second Mm -hmm. I walk in the room. Right. Mm Uh, so, so the, that is among the things that you do just simply do not have when you step out of uniform and you won't have them again. And it's a uh, definitely takes adjustment.
2: I, uh, I posted on Facebook, I finally got my ribbons mounted finally 17 years. finally got my ribbons mounted together <laughs> okay. and, uh, I get about a hundred likes. So I get about, uh, let me think 1900, 100. I get about a ten, eight eight to 10% return on likes. Right. Yeah. It's metrics. I, I track metrics. I'm starting into marketing now. And uh, come to find I got a new medal already because of the hurricanes last year. So now I got to re rack my ribbons. But you're right. I mean, you always, military members have the sniff test. You walk in. All right. I know who that is. I know what they look like. I know who they are. Now try this. I'm an academy grad. I'm a ring knocker. I've been a ring knocker for 17 years. My friends are sitting in front of the 06 board right now. My friends are in command of major units right now. Like now try me being able to call up half a dozen those sixes about a hundred Oh fives and all my classmates and say, Hey, I got a problem versus being Travis where the ring doesn't matter trying to start over in Silicon Valley. It's, it's a gut punch. It genuinely yeah. is a gut punch. And th- not even that, I-, I know about 29 who can always mentor and counsel me when I go rogue. like, that that goes away, too, and it's a gut punch when you – you. And I, I, California broke me at this, really. When you go to Dolores Park in the Mission in San Francisco, and a homeless guy and a multimillionaire are both wearing the same hoodie, and you can't tell who was who, that <laughs> yep. cracked me. That straight up cracked me.
1: I hear you. And we're uh we're getting close to the end of the uh, the podcast here so to to bring all that home from from what I've heard and what I hear in your voice as you're speaking to it and I'm I'm kind of looking at my my bare bones or my uh my skeleton script that I have here is how it goes I'd written in there at some point in time what makes your your blood pressure go up what feels to me and your what it feels to me like what you're saying is you've got this transition coming up whether you like it or not. Certainly there could be a wild card to make an 05, but Mm -hmm. you are staring down the barrel of the actual transition that you've been now thinking about for some number of years and gone so far as to write a book about it. And that's actually coming to the point where it's starting to get tangible, right?
2: Yep, absolutely.
1: What could this community do or feedback to you to help is there is there something that you're trying to find out where you're at right now is there anything we can do to help not yet <laughs> i was I was about to ask if i lost you but <laughs> i was thinking this is either this is either the deepest moment ever on the garrison project podcast
2: or i lost you <laughs> not yet um know we both read Seth Godin so again Seth Godin's advice for authors is kind of my my guiding my guiding line the idea that you spend three years to work on your platform before you call in your platform for help right now no I'm not we talked about post-military dreams one of my dreams is to get a tricked-out Ford Explorer spend two years and visit all 50 states on a book tour Um, yeah I don't know what the book's going to be about yet. I know it's in my head. I know i got to get out of my head and my heart. Uh, My friend Angel Jones from Trinidad just did this for his podcast. He did 300, I think, interviews across the country in the last two months, which is pretty awesome. So I know it's doable. And I think for the country I've served, not knowing who this country is, I've never been in the middle 25 states of America, I'd like to do that. Check it out myself. I'm humbled by the, the question, I'm humbled by the offer, but right now what I need to do rests on what I do and I have to get past my own uh, inner saboteurs, my own negative scripts and really be the the leader in both what I do in uniform and who I want to be after the uniform to really be in a position to, that, to answer that question better.
1: I hope that the spirit of what or the spirit and vision of what I'm trying to do here, which is veterans connecting with veterans first and then supporting each other with, with resources and all that. I hope that sinks into you in a couple of years down the road, when all of this stuff becomes real, the, the transition piece comes real. And, you know, you, when you walk away, like the last day I was talking to, I was doing another interview earlier today, uh, a fellow who had just, he's been seven days retired, right? Today is one week officially of his retiring out of the air force. And I tell you, you got to give yourself room when that happens, uh, 20 years doing one thing, the, you'll step out of the uniform and you really have to give yourself a little bit of kind of emotional space there to adjust to what is now significantly different and, and use your network. Um, not just, uh, for, you know, for, for business stuff or whatever, but, you know, reach out, call people up. Sounds like you've got a pretty strong network already, but you know, Give me a ring, or give whoever a ring, and just bounce ideas around, and and uh, and there you go. Continue using the network, right?
2: Absolutely, definitely, so, full agreement, and and really make a new network.
1: True. If you yeah.
2: Make the link; you can be a link. And I think that's that's a chief thing too. I know it is.
1: The other part to add on to that, not to pile on, network is good and great, but I'd had the the privilege of having some people that I would call mentors. And I didn't really fully get it, but there are some people in in my life professionally that I can reach out to and say, this is what I'm thinking and and be comfortable with them saying that's silly or that's good, but pivot this way or that. So mentors, not just network, uh, but have mentors around you. Uh, Just a thought.
2: No, absolutely. Full agreement.
1: So all that being said, my friend, I appreciate you being on the, uh, on the podcast, on the Garrison Project podcast here tonight. I, I queried you before we, we started that I was having trouble coming up with a good closing. <laughs> that, that every, every, time, every time I close my podcast, it was some, this goofy, uh, all right, then see you later. I don't even know what it was. It was just whatever is coming out of my mouth. So sage advice, uh, from you to mention, uh, to the listeners, I hope everybody else has enjoyed the conversation. I, I reiterate what I've, what Travis and I've talked about here that use your network. You know, it may sound cliche and all that kind of stuff, but pick up the phone and call people and say, this is what I'm thinking and see what their, what their, what their thoughts are and all that and absorb that input and come back to come back and keep visiting the, the Garrison, the Garrison project site, www.thegarrisonproject.com. That's pretty easy, right? Reach out to me, Dan, the Garrison Travis, how can people get a hold of you? And uh, and include the books, too.
2: So the books are on Amazon. They're Amazon books right now. They're not in paper. Both Community Transition and Scale are out there. LinkedIn is the best place to find me. I'm the, I'm, I'm Travis Collier on LinkedIn. That's my, my name, my handle on LinkedIn. I've taken that over. I'm also on Facebook, but really LinkedIn is where the conversation for me, for transitioning, best takes place.
1: Fantastic. Travis, thanks a bunch for being on the show. I will catch up with you sometime soon.
2: And brother, thanking you again for the opportunity. Take care.
0: You have been listening to the Garrison Project Podcast with Dan Edinger, Veterans connecting with veterans across generations through the power of storytelling. Look for us on the web and social media and please share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks for the support like us whenever you listen to our podcast and stay tuned for more episodes